Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking to author Marilyn Greenwald, a professor in the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University. She's the author of a biography about broadcasting pioneer Pauline Frederick, called Pauline Frederick Reporting, a pioneering broadcaster covers the Cold War. Frederick was the first woman to be heard as a reporter for network radio in the late 1940s as she covered the Nuremberg trials of Nazi war criminals. She also was the first woman reporter to appear on network television covering the 1952 political conventions. Well, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, <laughs> right. people are really interesting. You know, you, you, a lot of the people I've looked at, you, you couldn't make it up. I mean, their lives have been really interesting. I, I know Charlotte Curtis was, was pretty obvious from, from your studies, and she was a, 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 certainly a female pioneer in, in the news business at, at the highest levels. But, but how did you come up with the idea of, of the Hardy Boys book and, and Cleveland Amory? <laughs> Well, the, the Hardy Boys book, I read this column about this reporter who for, you know, freelanced writing the Hardy Boys books in a column in the Washington Post. And it was interesting. And the person who wrote it thought it was interesting. And I said, did, did it, has anyone ever heard of this guy, Leslie McFarlane? And, you know, he, he might make a whole book, you know, and it turns out he kept 20 years of diaries. So there you go. Wow. So I was lucky. <laughs> a and treasure trove. Yeah. And he lived way up two hours north of Toronto and, you know, was always in the snow and, and things like that. So there was a lot of color to it. So he was one of these obscure people that turned out to be really interesting. And Cleveland Amory I had always heard of, but I, I was interested in his animal activities because he was a real true believer in animal rights. And it, it eventually overtook his life for but better or worse. He was sort of a role model for you in, in some ways, right? I mean, you've you've been a critic uh, yeah. all, all your life, and he was one of the, the stellar critics yeah, for was. a number of decades. For many national publications. Um, and what's interesting is he probably would have continued that into his old age, but he let the animal activities kind of overrun his life. So he did do things in criticism late in his life, but but it was 90% animals. Media curmudgeon. How'd you come up with well, that Well, I got to be honest with you. I won't lie to you. That was not my title. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had a couple of people say, what does that mean? And I said, well, I think I know what it means, but it was not my. Now, he did call himself a curmudgeon, which is why the press put that in the title. I'm not 
I would not have. But but he did label himself as a curmudgeon. So, so you published that in 2009, and I know after that you, you just really went to work on, on the book that just came out, the one on, on Pauline Frederick. Uh, let's talk about her just a, a little bit, and, and then I want to get into how you put the book together. But for many people, they may remember that name slightly, Pauline Frederick, and, and she was a, a, a pioneer in, in broadcast news, one of the first women you would have ever heard in broadcast news. I remember as a, as a small child in Dayton, Ohio, listening to network news, and the only woman I ever heard was back then was, was Pauline Frederick, but, but she had a presence about her that just was commanding. How did you how did you come upon this for a topic? Well, you know, in her day, as you just said, she was quite well known. I mean, she was virtually a household name. So there were a lot of stories done about her in, in magazines. And there was this huge story in the Saturday Evening Post done in, I think it was 61 or 63, by Gay Talese, who was, of course, yeah, famous still famous. and was then. And it was this long story, and somebody sent it to me and said, you know, she might make an interesting book. And I looked at it, and, and I knew a little bit about her, and I read it, and I thought, oh, I'm sure she will, but I'm sure someone's done something on her. And she's in anthologies. You know, they have three, three, four pages about her. Sure. But no one's done the book. So I thought, I'm pretty surprised. Then I thought, well, does she have any papers? Because, you know, she she would be gone. You know, she's been gone for 20 years. She probably doesn't, not many people and, remember And, and broadcast people usually don't have a lot of papers. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so I thought, don't get too excited because, you know, if I only have a bunch of 80-year-olds to interview, it's not going to be a great book. Well, she had something like 40 cartons of stuff, letters, and that she kept everything, wow. everything. And it's housed at Smith College. So a little bit out of the way, I'll admit, but Smith College, you can imagine. What are their archives like? Now, where Wonderful. is Smith? Smith? Northampton, Massachusetts. Okay. So it's a little bit, it's about a two-hour drive from Boston. It makes it a little inconvenient. But but the archives, you know, they have such an endowment. You know, everybody gives money, all the alums, to Smith College. It's the most wonderful archive you've ever been to in your life. So everything worked. She had papers. There were a ton of them. She had something like 400 pictures. I am not kidding. Wow. I mean, I could only use a couple of them in the book. Um, and so everything worked well, other than the fact it's a little bit hard to get to Northampton and they get a lot of snow and, and the whole business. But I, I went to the archive four or five times because it takes you that long to go through so, everything. So I'm sure you do sort of a preliminary. You read this yes. article. You do some preliminary work and, and say, you know, well, there there might be enough here. There are at least archives that, that I can go through. But... At what point do you fall in love with the topic? At what yeah. point does it grab you and you say, you know, I, I've got to do this? That's a good question. I think what happens is when you make the first trip to the archive, you don't really know what you're doing other than what you've read in the magazines. So a lot depends on what you find in the archives. And I think some people are kind of bland maybe, you know. And I didn't know. I hope she's not, like, bland. And just some of the letters that she sent when she was a young reporter overseas – to hold them in your hand and read them. And then she's worried about her father who was sick and she's over overseas and, you know, just to humanize her. And she really cared about her family, her sister and her parents. And I think that's when I said, boy, she's not only accomplished, she's actually a human being, you know, and she's really concerned about things outside of her job. And that's when I started thinking she's really, she, she's really great and worthwhile. We'll be back after this short message. 
At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We're talking to Professor Marilyn Greenwald from the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism, an award-winning author, talking about her new book about broadcaster Pauline Frederick and her struggles in TV news called Paying Her Dues, just out by Potomac Press. Uh, the, the title says so much, but let's, let's go back and, and, and trace her, her career a little bit. As, as many people in early days of broadcast, uh, you mentioned she started out in print, and print was really her first love. Yes, she was a print reporter. She graduated from American University with actually two degrees, a master's degree and an undergraduate degree, and she immediately started freelancing um, you know, writing, freelancing print articles for some Washington newspapers. And she ex described how excited she was, her first byline, in actually, um, you know, in, in the Washington Post. <laughs> Not too shabby. Yeah, and it had a longer byline. name. It was right. the Post and something <laughs> right. else back then. Yeah, and then she said, and, and it was the classic, and then I was hooked. I knew I'd never do anything else. So she was doing that, and then radio started coming of age, and she started working for a guy named H.R. Bockage, who, who apparently was well-known back in the 40s, and she was his apprentice. And so she, then she was writing for him, but he said, you know, it's great you're writing for me, but women will never, you'll never be on the air. I hope you know that. That will never happen because women's voices don't have authority for news if you want to cover features, maybe. So she went into this with, well, I'm in radio. I'll, I don't know if I'll ever be on the air. And, so. and, and she was just post-World War II with this. She wasn't part of the Murrow Boys, so to speak. Well, yeah. she wasn't, but, you know, she... But she, she was on the cusp, Yeah, right? in fact, she covered, as a freelancer, post-World War II in, like, 1947. Oh, some of so. the occupation issues. Yes, then. and that's when it, it affected her life because that she spoke at length about that. She was only there about a year or so, but she saw dead bodies. She saw kids with... with missing limbs and she said she would never forget that as long the the horrific sights so it was a combination of seeing that and and then she got in the radio almost by accident and then you know thinking I'll be a writer for radio I will never be on the air because women work on the air. Talk about a glass ceiling. I mean, that, that I mean, you uh, people know, just said, this yeah, isn't going to happen they did. in they your lifetime. Yeah, they Forget didn't say, about well, it. it might happen. Or whatever. I mean, I just, he You're told a great her, writer, and you could write for me. <laughs> you got it. And that's what Bockage did. Yeah. And I mean, in a way, he was a mentor to her, and I think she really did love him. And But in a, in a way, you're think, you know, you read it now, and we think, 
real nice. You know, you won't, well, you won't let her on the air. People <laughs> think of the way women were treated in the series Mad Men, and you go back twenty oh, years before that, and and Mad and, it, Men. and, and it was even yeah. it was even worse. She it, would it, love to be treated the way they were yeah. in Mad Men. I mean, you know, she she really and that's what makes her so compelling is because she you talk about cracking the gra- the glass ceiling. What happened was she was overseas and she was covering some things and ABC Radio said, well, we need, she covered Nuremberg, for instance. Oh, the Nuremberg. Yeah. And so so there were some key, some key testimony. And they said, you know, we really do need you to, to, you know, give us something here. So they just conveniently forgot she was a woman, you know, because they were getting the story. So then she, she um, broadcast short bits from overseas. And then one thing led to another. So right place, right time. You know, and she's the first to say that. She says, you know, in a way I was lucky because I happened to be there. I think it was Goring or somebody. It was some, you know, it was one of the major players was was giving testimony. So she did that. And so there were a couple other stories. And she was making nothing. I mean, even in our, she was making nothing even by our definition. You know, she'd be making $50 a story, I think, if she were there doing it today. (laughs) I mean, it's and so she was a freelancer, and you know you gotta love ABC. They they kept her on as a freelancer for like two or three years. I mean, they wouldn't give her a full time job for like another three years. Wait, we we can't hire a woman, but we can use her um, and, and her expertise. You Isn't that exactly right? Exactly, have it, and that's exactly what happened. And I give her credit because I think a lot of people would have said, "Forget this. It's been three years." But you she guys hung are. in there. She hung in there. She was finally hired full time at ABC. Did really well. Started covering the UN. When it wasn't the UN, you know, the UN Charter, she when, was when the only. When they were formulating yeah. it, and even before they built it. In yeah, New in York. fact, I tell people she went over to Lake Success in Long Island. That's where the UN met. They didn't right. have this beautiful headquarters, no. and nobody else wanted to cover the UN for a couple reasons. Number one, they didn't think they were qualified. Her major was international relations. Coincidentally, she loved it, and they thought we don't want to cover a bunch of guys sitting around a table talking. You know, they didn't want to do that. She loved it, so lo and behold, they wanted to use her again because they thought, well, we have somebody who actually likes doing this and understands it. She was on the air, did well. NBC hired her in 1953. She was, became one of their stars, and one thing led to another. She became a you know television came of age, and that was that. And she was just this kind of well-known household name. But early on, I remember her reports uh, back in, in her early days, and she had an authoritative presence. I mean, yes. it, it, she didn't have a, a shrill voice. It's all the complaints that people fabricated about women in broadcasting back then, she didn't have. I mean, she had she had a, a fairly low timber to her voice, and, and and uh, her delivery was exquisite. I mean, her yes. her diction and everything was spot on. You know, you are right. I mean, I've heard her, and she does. She did have a low voice, but but um, in the book, we we I quote Edward Murrow. He 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 tells someone else, not Pauline, another woman. You know, if you want to succeed in this business at all, you have to have a low voice, which is really pretty interesting that, that Murrow told someone that. And she did have a low voice, and she was tall. She was probably 5'9". She was thin, tall, low voice. And I don't think it was coincidental. You know, I mean, so she was... Um, smart, obviously smart. Well, and, yeah. and, and, and steeped in international relations. Yeah, she loved it. And that was, she got a master's degree in it. So, so she started off really covering things 
nobody really wanted to cover. The Nuremberg trials and then the formation of the United Nations, those probably weren't top on reporters' lists. No, they weren't. In fact, that's when they were called foreign ministers, you know, that term. Oh, foreign. yeah. And I, I laughed when I read it. It's like, who wants to cover? Or me having a meeting of the foreign ministers. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of reporters that are going to, like, clamor to cover that. And she did. And she loved it. So, again, it was it was lucky in many ways. It was, it was luck mixed with skill. We're talking to Marilyn Greenwald, the professor at the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism, about her new book, Paying Her Dues, about Pauline Frederick and her struggles in television news. The book published by Potomac Books out in January of 2015. Let's talk a little bit, Marilyn, about her transition from radio to television. When did that happen, and and how did it happen? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to remember the year... Um, when it happened, she had been in radio. There was the first televised um, the political convention, presidential oh, convention. that's right. And that's when it happened because the networks were looking for people to cover it. And a lot of people, Murrow included, said, I don't want to get in front of a camera. You know, I mean, they didn't want to do it. So they were clamoring for people to do it. And, and, and they asked for volunteers. And Pauline didn't even volunteer. She did not want to be on, on camera because she, she didn't know how. And they drafted her. They said, you, you have to do this because they don't have enough people. So this was for ABC. So there she was, the lone woman. And, you know, she tells stories. I have stories that, that she talks about. about she, They didn't know how to make up people. You know, I mean, they didn't know what kind of makeup to wear. She went to, you know, Bonwit Teller and said, I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be on video. And how do I, what do I do? And they said, well, we know about, you know, Hollywood. We know what makeup if you're going to be in a movie, but we don't know what to do. And, you know, she's makeup was running off people's faces and, <laughs> and you know, and, and the stories. I have a chapter in the book about this first televised convention. And it's almost comical. Was, I mean, it, was, was it 54 or? Yeah, or, or, or uh, 52 maybe. 52. I, I think yeah. it was. 52, 56, yeah. 60. That's right. So and that's, it's been 52. And, you know, and, and it was a heat wave. They were both in Philadelphia. And there's stories about, you know, I guess I know that heat hurts equipment and you know, these things were bursting. <laughs> and it's really pretty comical. That I have New York Times stories that are, that are just hilarious, talking about the cameras. How they could possibly get on the air in those infancy you years. You know, it was, it, somebody should do a television show just on that. I mean, you'd have enough. But that's what she did, and, and she was reluctant. She did not want to do it. How was she received by the public? You know, I, I, I guess I don't know the answer to that completely i mean the 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 television version of it got mixed reviews but it was such a learning experience in fact one of the headlines you know in the editor and publisher was learning experience candidates learn that they have to look good that they have to speak in short sentences you know so i i'm not sure i i guess people did watch it i'm not sure what their reaction was but from the other end from the candidates and the reporters they just learned decades of stuff in, in, you know, in a couple of weeks just from the coverage. Her career spanned how long on TV? Well, from she, 50, fi- early 50s. Fi- well, actually, technically, yeah, early 50s, I guess, late 40s. And she forced retirement because of her age in 74. So Wow. And she didn't want to retire. NBC wow. had a, had a um, you know, they, they made her retire. And that was kind of unfortunate. She exceeded the retirement age by a year, hadn't heard anything from NBC, didn't ask because she wanted to keep working. And she found out from the New York Times she was retiring. <laughs> she reads a story in the New York Times that says Pauline, NBC's Pauline Frederick to retire. So, Well, 
her, over that span of time, though, her her assignments were amazing. Oh, uh, unbelievable! Uh, it, she she covered the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I believe that was in October of '62. Is it, yes, is it right around there. I could have my yeah, dates off yeah. a little bit. So she'd only been in the TV business about ten years, and she's covering the oh. White House and probably yeah. the closest that. The public knows that we've come to nuclear war. Yeah, and well, exactly. And see, this is why I thought she was important, too. She was the—she not wasn't the only one, but she was one of the few people that gave Americans, you know, the info on, hey, you know, we could be in nuclear war any minute. I mean, if you remember, near, you know, the duck and cover. And oh, the, it was It was it scary. Was scary. And so, you, you and I had to duck under yeah, our desks and I put mean, our hands over our it's heads. It's <laughs> kind of funny now, but it was, it, you know, people were scared we could go up, you know, in, in, in a blast any second. It, it was a scary time. And she was one of the people that, that translated stuff that said, hey, this is what this means. This means something. This means nothing. And I think people liked that she was a woman. Well, in the preface of the book, I have an an, an anecdote about how somebody sent her, you know, people would send her stuff like, sure. oh, we like you, you know. Yeah. Somebody sent her pantyhose, some guy, because, oh, I listen to you all the time, and I love your voice, and you always give me this. And I know that women like pantyhose. She, he worked for some mill in, in, in the South. So he sent her a sample. Yeah, he sent her pantyhose. <laughs> But it was really kind of touching because he was saying, we like you, we trust you, you give us a straight story, thank you. And, you know, and so. I'm giving you what I have. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and what I make. Yeah. So I so, thought it was great. So, so she did the Cuban Missile Crisis. I know that that was uh, one of the top ones. She did uh, an interview with Castro. The Castro interviews really intriguing because it was when he first came to power in 59 and he visited the UN for the first time people as she escorted him because she was head of the correspondence association people s- applauded Castro as he walked down the halls they loved him because he was here you know he he helped free Cuba and um it's funny because in this, the, now historically this was his first time in New York. If I remember, I believe right. it was. This, this, I, this was the chickens in the hallway of the hotels. Uh, yes, this, this, this was uh, yes. a big deal. Yeah, because I mean, you know, it was this ter- terrible situation in Cuba. The people were freed. This this handsome, I think he was thirty one. You know, this handsome revolutionary. He was an attorney. You know, he wasn't a general. He was. And they applauded. And in fact, Pauline, I think, kind of liked him. And Pauline was very smart. I mean, she could read people very well, as you can imagine. And I think she really liked him. I have a picture in the book of they're they're sitting next to each other, pretty cozy. (laughs) I mean, people look at the picture and they go, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So he fooled her. I, I will tell you, he fooled her. And then it turned out. You know, <laughs> yeah, things didn't turn out. You know, but um, but yeah, they loved Castro. She liked Castro. Her her being centered at the United Nations for for much of her broadcast career, she followed the ebbs and flows of of that institution. Did did she get personally invested in in the United Nations as as a, a institution or as a, a mechanism for world good or or how would you describe it? She absolutely was. I mean, it wasn't in her reporting because she wanted to be objective, but from the very beginning of the United Nations, she felt very deeply that this is an organization we will never have another war after this organization is formed. She felt that very deeply. Um, and as time went on, of course, 
things changed. And her niece, who was, um, you know, her only surviving relative, told me that even as at the end of her life, when, you know, shortly before she died, they had conversations. And Pauline said, I'm devastated that that didn't work. So she was quite the idealist. <clears throat> I mean, she really, she really thought, took it personally. Yeah, and, and that was another thing that intrigued me about her. She, it, it, it was more than a beat, although it, it didn't get into her reporting. But she believed in it. She, she, uh, a thousand percent. And then it became more of a uh, toothless tiger, so to speak. You are exactly and, and, right. And and its effectiveness kept becoming questioned, and still is today. Yeah, and the Vietnam War, Vietnam, the Vietnam War was kind of the nail in the coffin. I mean, they they had absolutely no clout in in the Vietnam War, and. And they were going down, the clout was going down, and Nixon had no use at all for, for the U.N., and then, you know, ever since. we we got about five minutes left. We haven't talked a thing about her personal life. Did, did, you, did you delve into that as, as part of doing her profile? This is what's intriguing. She said she went into journalism. She came from a traditional, very Methodist family. You know, you, you get married, you have children. You know, you go to college if you're a woman, but you get married. And but you go went, to college to get married. You, well, you, or that, You, you yes. don't even have to graduate. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so, then. you know, her sister did that, her mother did right. that, middle of Pennsylvania. And um, she planned to do that, although she was always smart, got a bunch of awards in high school. And what's really sad is, I think it was her senior year, she had some problem, abdominal problems. And, and, and they said, well, we, we got to do some outpatient surgery, and they did. Well, they ended up giving her a hysterectomy, and it was unplanned. Oh, my. And so she was devastated when she came to, and she said, and this was, you know, she was born in 08, so, you know, you could do the math. It sure. Was, and she said, well, I'll never get married. Nobody will ever have me. I can't have kids, so I'm going to concentrate on my career. And that was a turning point in her life. I found that fascinating. And she I, she did get married when she was 60. 60? For the first for time. For the first time? Yeah. And she, she did get married when she was 60, but she, she – and I, there were a couple romances that I deal with in the book fleetingly, but nothing major. And she married somebody her, her age who was a former reporter. And when she gave interviews, she said, you know, I have it all now. I have it all. So she really had the whole – I would love to have it all. And she did at the end. It's interesting being an intelligent woman as as she was and an accomplished woman as she was that she would value her personal life. And, you know, nobody would have me just because I wouldn't have, couldn't have children. Yeah. It's sad. It's Um, a sad commentary on on the times, really. And I think it's interesting. You know, she got married when she was 60, took her husband's name. I mean, you know, which, you know, that speaks to her generation, too. Absolutely. And so um, seemed happy, you know, when, when she got married, and, and I think that worked out. And her husband had a grown son, and, you know, she had that family, and then she had grandchildren through her husband. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she was so, she was, all, you know, could never get married. I mean, she was working, you know, 40 hours a day, you know. I mean, yeah. she, she could, I, I, you <laughs> and know. And traveling all over the world yeah, yeah, at, at, yeah. The, at the drop of a hat. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I, she would I'm have sure. to give the, have given So that. we've just got a couple of minutes left. Your title, Paying Her Dues, Her Struggles in Television News. What was the top struggle, just being there or uh, um, staying there? Well, staying there, you know, she not only was the first woman 
a network reporter. She and this is what I tell people: she was the first woman for five, six, seven, eight years. It yeah, wasn't like you wasn't know she like did it for was... a year. And I think staying there, and you know, she gave a million speeches. You know, she was a very popular um, commentator. You know, giving speeches, and she she always said, you you know, you walk a, a, a fragile line because on one hand you can't be shrill, you can't you know be too aggressive. On the other hand, you do have to stand up for yourself. And that's, there's the rub to get, get, get right down the middle. Because if, as soon as you start acting aggressive, people are going to, we'll never hire another woman. This is going to be the last time, you know. So I think staying there, what, you know, getting there, but just staying there was, was pretty amazing for the time, you know. Trailblazer for women in journalism, women in broadcast journalism. Absolutely. In fact, a couple uh, that are I quote in the book that are still around who came in the early 60s said they consider her. Marlene Sanders, who did the foreword, they consider her a trailblazer. Um, you know, people think of Barbara Walters, and I'm not putting her down, but, but she really wasn't, she, she was not one of the first or second. I mean, she, she was one of, you know, maybe the top five, six, seven, but there were definitely people who came before Barbara Walters. We've been talking with Dr. Marilyn Greenwald, the author of a biography about the journalistic pioneer, Pauline Frederick. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Spectrum can be heard on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, and the NPR One app. For more information about Spectrum, go to wob.org.